true believers, webheads, welcome to another episode of the Spider-Man 77 Fan Show Podcast. I'm John Bergman, and I'm swinging into the host chair once again, and we are going hyper-specific for today's show. And I say hyper-specific because we're going to be anchored in one single episode of the Spider-Man television series, particularly the episode titled The Captive Tower, which kicked off the second season. Today's guest is Philip Taylor, who is one of the two people that dreamed up the story for The Captive Tower, the other person being Bruce Kalish. We'll get into more of it later in today's show, but just to explain, if you look at the opening credits for The Captive Tower, it says, quote, story by Bruce Kalish and Philip Taylor, or Philip John Taylor, as he is credited, and teleplay by Gregory S. Danalo. So there were multiple minds at work on the Captive Tower from a narrative side of things to say nothing of the additional contributions from director Cliff Bowl and all the actors, of course. In terms of some background on Philip Taylor, he was born in England. He had quite the esteemed education at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, at Oxford University, and at some other schools. This all evolved into him working as a theater actor with the Royal Shakespeare Company and some other outlets in the 1960s and the early 1970s. He eventually moved to the United States and over time kind of did it all. He wrote for TV, he authored books, he produced shows, and he taught as a professor for a long time at Arizona State University. If we put a magnifying glass on his TV credits alone, we see everything from Good Times and All in the Family to The Incredible Hulk, Knight Rider, Murder, She Wrote, Mork and Mindy, Spider-Man, obviously. I mean, Philip's name really is attached to pretty much the defining TV shows of the 70s and the 80s, and he's still writing today. So going back to what I said at the top, even though we are hyper-specific to the Captive Tower episode today, Philip's career has been about as far-reaching as they come. So you will want a notepad handy for this episode to jot down all of the other great shows and the actors and the movies that Philip mentions in this conversation. Real quickly, if you have never seen the Captive Tower episode, or if you are overdue for a rewatch, here's a brief synopsis. There's a new skyscraper that's having its grand opening, and a bunch of reporters and photographers have gathered inside the skyscraper to cover the opening. Naturally, a diabolical criminal mastermind sees this as an opportunity to hold all of those reporters hostage inside the skyscraper and demand a hefty ransom. Fortunately though, one of those hostages happens to be photographer Peter Parker, and so it's up to Spider-Man to rescue the hostages, to capture the criminal mastermind, and save the day. That's the basic plot. There's a lot of other good nuance in the episode though. For example, there's kind of some early exploration of AI, artificial intelligence, because there's an all-knowing computer that 
oversees the inner workings of the skyscraper, like the alarms and the elevators and whatnot. And there's also some really great stunt work, a really memorable tightrope walking scene from Spider-Man, among other stunts. And there's some really good acting too from the supporting cast. So if you need to go rewatch the episode, pause this podcast right here and go do that now. But otherwise, here is my conversation with the Captive Towers story co-creator, Philip Taylor. Philip Taylor, Philip John Taylor, as you are credited in the Captive Tower, the episode of Note today, it is an honor to have you on the podcast. You have had such a unique and eclectic career from acting to academia and producing and traveling and all points in between. I feel like there are many points that we could drop in on and have some fascinating conversation. We'll try to touch on several of them today, specifically your entry into the television writing side of things and being a writer in the 1970s. And of course, the captive tower, that episode that I just mentioned, maybe before we go any further, if you could just indulge me a bit in some word association or phrase association, when we were emailing back and forth to set this conversation up. And even as I sit here now, when I say the captive tower, what is it that, comes to mind first and foremost to you, whether it's a a memory or a feeling or a stage in your career, what does the title of that episode conjure up? Um, Frustration more than anything else. Um, I had a partner at the time. In fact, we worked together and he's still a good friend. Um, Yeah, he's in Los Angeles. So we don't, I'm in Scottsdale. So we don't see each other as much as we used to. Uh, But uh, my partner was Bruce Kalish. Um, and uh, we were both just starting off in the business. And uh, I cannot remember, because it's 45 years ago, uh, I cannot remember how we got into pitch uh, to the Spider-Man uh, team. Uh, but we said, we've got to come up with something really original. And we came up with this idea, uh, which was essentially die hard many years earlier. If you think about it, uh, it's a... Uh, computer design building, AI, uh, and uh, it's nobody can get in, nobody can get out unless they're allowed to, and that's obviously where the bribery uh, or the, the kidnapping comes in. Uh, so we pitched the idea, and they loved it, and they said, okay, go and write the treatment. So we went and we wrote, and again, they said, we're in a bit of a hurry, uh, which is a phrase you hear a lot in episodic television. Um, and so the sooner the better. So we we virtually uh, worked together over a, a long weekend, uh, finished it. And of course, in those days, we had to physically hand it in. Uh, there wasn't even a fax machine back in 1978, I, I don't think. Uh, so we physically dropped it off. Uh, and they said... Uh, Okay, thank you. We'll get back to you. And we never heard back from them. Excuse me. So by the end of the week, we plucked up the courage and we called them. 
And they said, oh, thank you. We'll take it from here. So in actual fact, the episode that you see on television was pretty close to the treatment that we had handed them. Uh, but we were what is known as cut off at story, uh, which happens a lot to young writers. Um, it certainly did back then. And I hear from uh, former students that it's still happening today. Um, there are two ways to go with this. One is they get a good idea. You see, the thing is, it's important. Uh, yes, we get credit. Uh, we get story by. But the real money is in the screenplay or the teleplay. Uh, first draft, there are three payments for freelance writing. Uh, story money, which is okay. First draft, which is really nice. Second draft, which is quite good. Then the credits are finalized and you can appeal them and go to arbitration with the guild. We saw no point. Um, uh, and then what happens is, here's the important thing, the residuals down the road are based on those credits. And so a lot of staff writers are really greedy because, yes, they get paid on a week-to-week -week basis, but the real money in episodic television are the residuals down the road. I mean, I'm still getting residuals for good times, um, for Mork and Mindy. Uh, they aren't great, but, you know, they're still residuals. Um, and so a lot of episodic writers will cut off the poor freelancer. Uh, I mean, sorry, uh, episodic house writers, as they're called, will cut off the freelancer and then take that out and get the money themselves. Uh, there's another way to do this, which happened to us on several shows. Uh, when you're starting out, it's, it's, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. But one of them was uh, an episodic uh, drama series called Quincy with Jack Klugman. You know, this was, I think, before or after he was on the Out Couple series. Um, and he played a medical examiner. It was like murder he cut. I mean, it was, uh, you know, we, we, something's wrong with this body. Um, so we had this great idea, which I can't remember, but we had this great idea for an episode. And we, you know, and you come in with like four or five episodes. And so we pitched them and we got to this one, which we thought was our gang. You know, this was our really good one. And they said, oh, we're working on something like that. So we went, oh, thank you very much. That was the end of the um, the meeting. And of course, the minute we stepped out of the room, they went, oh, that was a good idea. Uh, and then they take it for themselves. Uh, that's being really greedy because they don't even give the poor you know, freelancer the, the story credit. But anyway, so that's why the Captive Tower was uh, a frustrating experience. Um, the other frustrating experience we had, uh, and again, it's part of the learning process, um, when you're working in episodic television, everything goes through... A, well, I'll, I'll tell you the story first. Uh, we landed an episode of a Don Rickles uh, sitcom called CPO Sharking. He was chief petty officer. It ran for several years. Um, and we got an episode. We were thrilled. And uh, we went in, we pitched the idea, they liked it, uh, and they gave us, uh, this time we got the first draft. Oh, boy. Uh, we wrote the first draft. Uh, and they said then, uh, we'll pay you for the second draft, but we're in a real hurry, 
So we'll take it from here. Thank you very much. We, we really like what you did. So we went, oh, 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 boy. So about a week later, they were a real hurry because they called us and said, we're actually shooting your episode tonight uh, or taping it. Uh, would you like to come along to the, you know, to the live broadcast, you know, in front of a live audience? So we went, and I don't know if you've ever been to the taping of a sitcom. Uh, there's usually a warm-up first by one of the staff writers. And he said, well, bye-bye. He's trying to warm up the audience. And he said, and in the audience tonight are the writers of tonight's episode, Bruce Kalish and Philip Taylor. We took a little bow, the whole thing. The show started. We did not recognize one single line. They had changed everything. And so uh, in the, um, uh, in the uh, intermission, the producer, I think his name was Aaron Rubin, came up and he said, so what do you think? And I said, you changed everything. He said, yeah, but you gave us a good start. Uh, that's the nature of sitcom. Uh, it, uh, I said there was one line. Uh, I, I think the line we had written was, uh, uh, why, don't, why don't you put it outside of Monty's pool hall? And I said, you changed it to Shorty's Chicken Shack. He said, pays are funny. I mean, that, that was his response. So we're, this is part of the learning process, right? So uh, you know, that, uh, that is you know, the nature of sitcom. Uh, to give you an example, let's say it's a, let's say this, uh, uh, most shows uh, start on a Monday and end up taping or filming on Friday, sitcoms. Um, so over the weekend, you, you know, that's rare, that's usually the time you have to write your own episodes, you know, to figure those out. And how to, uh, because you're also, if you're on staff, you're also dealing with, you know, other people's episodes. So Monday, uh, the show goes to table. Uh, that literally means everyone sits around a large table and reads the final draft. Um, and, of course, obviously the cast are there, the entire writing staff, uh, obviously the producers, the director of that episode, um, and you, uh, obviously, usually the network representative, you know, who's, the net, let's say it's ABC, ABC says, oh, you're going to be in charge of Morgan Mindy. Uh, so that's, he's the network representative. Uh, and then the studio representative as well. And then the production company representative. So there's a lot of people in the room. So after uh, the read-through, uh, notes are given by everyone. And so the writing staff are writing them all down, writing them all down. So then you go back after lunch uh, and start working on the rewrites. Uh, and this process goes on. And meanwhile, the director then goes to the soundstage and starts, you know, putting it on its feet, you know, blocking the show. So, uh, and then, of course, pages are going back and forth. Well, this process will happen. There'll be a run-through on Wednesday, let's say. This process will happen again. Uh, Thursday, uh, maybe if you're lucky, you're interviewing freelancers for new episodes. You're working on your own. Um, and then Friday, uh, there'll be a taping in the afternoon. <clears throat> Excuse me. More notes will be given. Uh, you rush back. Uh, order a sandwich, do rewrites on those notes uh, for the second taping, which is that evening. 
Uh, and then um, after that, you do what are known as pickups, where, uh, oh, uh, Frank flubbed that line. Uh, and so we got a close up of Frank saying that line. So it's edited in. Uh, so it's not really a totally live broadcast, but 98% of it is. Um, or we, we lost that line on the mic. Uh, that, so you really get out of there before midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Uh, so, you know, uh, and it, it's now it's, it's one o'clock on a Saturday morning and you go home, you get some sleep and then you start working on the weekend, you know, on your own episodes. Uh, so, you know, it's a 24 seven job episodic television. Uh, it pays well, you know, but it's hard. I remember once actually, uh, I can't remember the year, but I can pinpoint it for you. Uh, you will hear about what what time it was. Uh, we finished Mork and Mindy at about one o'clock in the morning. And Robin said, uh, who was still, you know, bouncing full of energy, he always was. Robin Williams said, uh, let's all go up to the improv. So we went, okay. And uh, we went up uh, to the improv. It was now like one thirty, two o'clock in the morning. Robin got up and said, give me three things in the news. And one of them was Three Mile Island. So that'll give you an idea the kind of time it was. And um, he improvised a 10-minute Shakespeare play in verse based on those three items. I mean, you, you just sat there and went, oh, my God, you know, couldn't believe it. Uh, but that was a little digression. So that's just the nature of sitcoms. Uh, on hour-long television or half-hour dramatic television, uh, obviously it's not as frantic, but in many ways it is. Uh, but obviously you, you're dealing with, you know, sound stages, a lot more exterior footage. Um, you know, so the planning that has to go in there, you know, you have to make sure you have, you know, the, the location shoot correctly, uh, you know, you have permission to shoot there, so on and so forth. Uh, and then there are constant rewrites going on there as well. You know, so uh, dramatic television, episodic television, um, is not quite as frantic as sitcoms, but, you know, it can get pretty close. Let me ask more about when you're saying that you yourself and Bruce are submitting to the studio, you're submitting drafts. Well, first of all, I guess the Spider-Man series was produced by Lionel Siegel. When you submit your whatever you have written, are you submitting to Lionel? Are you submitting to the producer? Are you just giving it to like a secretary or how, who do you, do you have a contact there at the, at the network? Yeah, it, it, it varies. Well, um, it's usually uh, it's the production company. Um, in other words, production company like um, uh, I can't really think of one now, but a production company has a development deal with Universal or Paramount or Warner Brothers, so they get situated on the lot um, or the, the Universal Studios building, wherever. Uh, and then you go in, and each um, TV series. Uh, has a number of different uh, forms of producer. The executive producer uh, is rarely uh, in the mix on a day-to-day -day basis. I remember when we we started off on Mork and Mindy, uh, Gary Marshall, God bless him, walked in one day 
and said, who are the new writers? Uh, which meant he didn't really know who the old writers were. So uh, he wasn't particularly involved. I mean, he had, obviously he would read the script. He was rarely at, um, uh, at the table read. Um, and, and so the executive producer would not be there. The show is, there is what's known as a showrunner, uh, who is usually called the supervising producer. He's the person in charge of getting the scripts together, keeping the show on, you know, running. We've got to be thinking three or four shows down the road. Uh, and then the line producer is the nuts and bolts guy who goes out, keeps the budget uh, tight, uh, you know, make sure the locations are secured, the acting, the casting, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, there's obviously some overlap, but the supervising producer uh, is the person in charge of the scripts. Uh, and usually you meet with either the supervising producer or some of the story editors under him, uh, and there can be consulting editor, executives. I mean, there are a number of different titles. Uh, sometimes you meet with one, sometimes you'll meet with a bunch of people. So that's who you go in and pitch to. Um, and I'm assuming on uh, the Captive Tower, um, I, I, I think it was at the Universal Building, which is the big black building you see from the freeway. Can you talk a little bit more about your process of writing these drafts with Bruce? I, I mean, do, do you each have strengths that you like? Are you great one of you great with dialogue and the other one is great with you know different plot points or is it like you just write something and give it to him and then he how does that collaborative process work for an episode yeah. like the captive tower yeah um well um in in actual fact surprising obviously you know i had i had been in show business before um you know as an actor <clears throat> uh, i was just learning the ropes as a writer and I thought, this is good. This is pays really well. And I stay home all the time. You know? um, I don't have to go out places except to go and pitch once in a while. Um, and Bruce, actually, big guy, um, he was a professional football player for a while. Uh, realized that wasn't going to work. And so came back to Los Angeles uh, and uh, went into his parents' uh, profession. They were both prominent uh, writers back in the uh in the 60s uh and 70s um in fact i think his mother irma was president of the writers Guild for a while if i'm not mistaken uh but the process was i it, as it turned out i obviously was better at dialogue um and bruce was um quite good at action uh, and actually better at um plotting you know setting up the 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 treatment, as it were. Uh, but as it turned out, um, as I said earlier, everyone's always in a hurry, you know, on episode TV. And so they always wanted as soon as possible. And as freelancers, you don't want to disappoint them. So what we would normally do is we would spend time together hashing out the treatment, you know, the, or what's known as the beat sheet. That's, I mean, literally beat by beat. What, you know, what, what is this episode? What are the scenes? What are each beat? Um, if you can find it, the classic uh, beat sheet is for Chinatown, uh, which is 30 pages long, um, but beautifully written. Uh, I think if you just search Chinatown beat sheet, it may show up. 
uh, on Google. Uh, and so we would get the beat sheet, you know, and then once it was approved by uh, the writers, uh, by the supervising producer, then we would literally split it up. Uh, okay, I'll take these three scenes, you take those three scenes. We'd finish those. So now we've got six scenes. He would read mine, I would read his. You know, oh, change this, do that. And, you know, then we would go off. So we didn't actually sit in a room going, duh, what do we do now? You know, um, it was much more of a singular collaborative effort, if that makes sense. Um, the other two people that I've written extensively with um, uh, was uh, Bruce Lansbury, Angela Lansbury's uh, brother. Um, they're both passed away now, unfortunately. Bruce was one of my dearest friends. Uh, funny that two of my collaborators are called Bruce. But um, uh, And then I worked for four years on uh, the Duncan Regeer Zorro for the Family Channel uh, with the... Uh, even though sometimes he got the credit and I got the credit. Again, the show was being produced in Madrid. Uh, and again, this fax machines were just creeping in. Uh, so time was of the essence. So we would probably, you know, we would actually write episodes together just for speed. But we never um, sat down in a room, you know, uh, and talked it out. Neither, none of those uh, writers or myself uh, just seem to work that way. Other writers, other partnerships I know do. They sit down in a room. I just cannot conceive of that. I think the only time Bruce and I ever did it was on a very short-lived series called Leonard. Uh, I don't know if even, I think it made the air, I don't think it lasted more than a few episodes. Um, I cannot remember the producer, but uh, the star was Leonard Fry. Uh, great actor. Uh, I think he had just come off making a name for himself as the bad guy in Boys in the Band, um, the uh, the original movie. Um, and then, of course, he was Model the Taylor in Fiddler on the Roof. Totally different role. Um, anyway, they decided they were going to build a comedy series about him. And they liked our idea. And literally, Bruce and I, at that time, uh, I was divorced. Bruce was single, and when I was divorced, he said, there's an apartment next to mine uh, vacant. This is out in the, the valley, San Fernando Valley. So I said, oh. So we literally lived next door to each other for about ooh, uh, 18 months. Um, and so we literally sat in one of our apartments, I can't remember which one it was, for three days, just pausing to go home and sleep for a couple of hours. We literally wrote that together in, I think it was like three days. But uh, that's the only time I can recall, actually. We would, when we were working on shows on staff, then we would sit down and do a rewrite on someone else's script together. Uh, because that's obviously, that's much easier. You've got something there to deal with. You know, you aren't making it up as you come along, as it were. At the risk of backtracking a little i'd love to hear how you and bruce even met and decided to start writing together because i i i don't think most writers grow up thinking oh it's you know at some point in my career i want to collaborate with somebody right writing is kind of you think of it as this isolated pursuit and you said yourself even like you would kind of do it separately so 
how did you and Bruce meet and realize that you did work well together? Well, um, I, I was uh, not a writer. Uh, I've been an actor with the Royal Shakespeare Company in England. Uh, and I was asked to come over and teach acting at USC for a year. And then I was due to go back to, to England. Uh, anyway, uh, my wife, or my ex-wife, I should say, um, had been friends with, or college friends, uh, with Julie Cobb, uh, Lee J. Cobb's daughter. And she was dating at the time uh, a young guy, young guy, he's my age now, uh, called Lloyd Schwartz. Uh, and Lloyd was Sherwood Schwartz's son. Sherwood Schwartz created Gilligan's Island uh, and the Brady Bunch. So we're all having dinner, the four of us, one night. And Lloyd says, I'm working on a new show with my dad. Uh, it's a Saturday morning children's show, which I don't think they have anymore, do they? I don't think so. Um, but there, Saturday mornings, there were cartoons, yes, but there were also you know, live dramatic shows uh, or comedy shows. And he, it's, uh, it was called Big John, Little John. Uh, and it was about a school teacher, happily married, and he and his wife and their 10-year-old son uh, go to Hollywood, uh, go to Florida on a vacation, and he accidentally drinks from the fountain of youth. Uh, and now, at the most inopportune times, uh, he becomes an eight-year-old. So, being a school teacher, this could be a problem. So I'm going, that's a great idea. Oh, I've got an idea for an episode. And it was called Peter Panic. The, the episode was called Peter Panic because they decided to do a school production of Peter Pan and he gets cast, uh, his son gets cast in the lead. So uh, Lloyd said, love that idea. Have you done any writing? So I said, oh, sure, back in England. Total lie. He said, well, can I see a treatment? So I said, sure. So I called up a writer friend of mine. I said, what's a treatment? So he explained. Uh, so I wrote the treatment, and Lloyd, Lloyd said, this is very good. You want to write the first draft? So uh, this is way before computers, remember. I had to go down to the library and see what the format for a screenplay was, or a teleplay. And of course, there were different formats. Um, the one camera or film format is totally different than a sitcom format, for instance. Anyway, so, but this was one camera. So I wrote the first draft. They liked it. Wrote the second draft. They liked it. And I went, oh, this is good. I get to stay at home and I get paid for this. So then Lloyd said, if you're going to do a career out of this, uh, they like writing teams. Young writers starting off in comedy, they like hiring a writing team. You don't you get paid twice as much, but that which is cheaper for them, but they get two heads for the price of not for the price of one, but kind of. So I said, okay. So he said, I've got the perfect guy, uh, Bruce Gaylor. Uh, and Bruce uh, had just started off writing, even though, as I said, his parents uh, were in the business. Uh, he had been a football player for a while, decided that wasn't going to be his career. So he put us together, and that's when we started going out and pitching. Um, and fortunately, we were able to get an agent uh, because uh, even so today, I mean, if you don't have an agent, you're never going to get in anywhere.
you know, that's uh, and then you rely on your page, uh, your agent's contacts, you know, to get you into whatever uh, you know production companies they have, and you know, they keep their ear out who's looking for scripts, who's desperate for scripts. So that's how we started out, uh, and then you know, uh, did quite a bit of good work over the next few years. One of the things I've often wondered when I'm watching shows from that era, not only Spider-Man, but also, let's say, The Incredible Hulk, and there's there was the Wonder Woman series and all that. I'm wondering if when you were coming up with story ideas, would you think of the story first or would you hone in on the the series first? In other words, what I mean is, like, would you just say, hey, here's a great idea in the case of the Captive Tower. Here's a great idea. You have some people that are at a grand opening of a skyscraper and then they get held hostage. And then you kind of say, yeah, we could pepper in, this could be a Spider-Man story or we could pitch it to the Incredible Hulk people or we could pitch it to the Wonder Woman people. Or did you say, I want to write a Spider-Man story. Here is the 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 plot that I came up with. In, in that particular, um, it can go either way sometimes. Uh, but in that particular case, I do remember um, you, you don't just go in and pitch one idea. That would be a total waste of time driving all the way to Universal City. But um, so you come up with five or six. Uh, so you sit down and I say, okay, well, what, how about if Spider-Man falls in love? Or um, I pitched that actually for Columbo, that Columbo falls in love with a woman he suspects, uh, as a killer. And I hadn't gotten any further than that. They said Columbo would never fall in love with her. And that's totally out of this franchise. Would never do it. So that shot that idea down. And it was a great idea. But anyway, um, so in the case of the Captive Tower, we came with, with four or five ideas that were uh, thought up given the Spider-Man franchise, the, the premise. Uh, sometimes, um, I'm trying to think of an example now, you think, uh, oh, why don't we do... Let's do a modern 310 to Yuma, let's say. And then you start looking for a show that might, you know, might fit that premise. Uh, the screenplay I'm working on right now, <clears throat> and I don't want to go any further because it's bad luck, but in actual fact, uh, there was a wonderful movie. In fact, I think she won the Oscar for it. Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland, Flute, uh, Murder Mystery, or thriller back in the 80s, I think, maybe the 70s. Um, and I thought, that's worth a remake, but I've got several twists on it. So it's not really a remake. That was like the springboard, you know, for the screenplay. And of course, the more you work it, the less it becomes like Clute. In fact, I think when when it's finished, if you read it, you will go, Clute? What's, what's this got to do with Clute? Uh, but sometimes it's you know it's a good springboard, so we can work either way. Sometimes you have to manufacture ideas to fit the pitch, uh, the franchise, and sometimes you go, "Ooh, that's a great idea. Let's write that down somewhere." In fact, actually, for a long time there, when I was actively working in LA, um, I had a notepad. Of course, gone to the days of you know there were no phones or tablets in those days. Uh, I would have a little notepad beside, in case I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning, I could, oh, that's a good idea, I'll write it down. Nine times out of ten, the next morning, you'd go, what the hell is that? You know. 
what did writers at the time and maybe to a larger extent, just people you knew in the industry, right? Like whether it was producers or whether it was just industry, industry folks, what did people think of the Spider-Man series? And I ask because it it's, you know, looking back on it, it's, you always hear that it was this really short lived thing. Uh, and you know, it only was, it only had a couple of seasons and even then it only had, you know, so many episodes per season. So like when you were talking with other people, what was the reputation of the Spider-Man series? Well, um, uh, in, back in those days, it was kind of like way ahead of its time. Uh, if you think about it, I'm, tr- I'm thinking of series and I'm not quite sure. Wonder Woman was 75 to 79. So it was right there in, in the middle of Wonder Woman. And of course, there was another series, um, which was extremely popular, uh, called The Six Million Dollar Man. Uh, which was uh, virtually a version of the Iron Man, if you, know, Iron Man, if you think about it, um, with Lee Majors. And that actually had a spinoff, uh, The Bionic Woman, uh, with, I can't remember her name now. Uh, but uh, so th- this was, but th- the Spider-Man series, uh, Wonder Woman was always a little tongue-in-cheek, and so the Spider-Man series was was known as a quite legitimate attempt to take it a little more seriously than ep- uh, episode than series of that nature had been in the past. Yeah. Speaking of being ahead of its time, I don't know if you will have any specific memory, but you said at the top of this conversation the AI aspect to the Captive Tower that the all-knowing computer that controls the building and you there's a really fascinating storyline there a plot line where there's the the person who's controlling the computer and he kind of is developing this friendship with the computer i mean it's very for considering this was you know 1978 very very ahead of its time was the ai aspect was that yourself or was that bruce that kind of had that in the forefront of that, of your mind. I have to confess that was me, but uh, and it's a huge but um, now we're going way back. Uh, I had just arrived in this country uh, and I was fascinated with the idea of drive-in movies, drive-in theaters. They don't exist in England because of the weather more than anything else. Um, and so we went and back in those days, they used to have double features. It was almost like a given. And we went to see Patton at a drive-in. And it was on a double bill, believe it or not. It's a three-hour movie. It was on a double bill with this little-known feature called Colossus, the Forbin Project. Have you heard of this? I have not heard of that. Uh, uh, So, we... Patton finishes, and it's about 1 o'clock in the morning. No, actually, probably it's about 10 o'clock at, at night. I said, it's going to be 1 o'clock when we watch the second feature. So I said, all right, let's just start watching it. And, well, we were totally hooked. I mean, uh, and that stuck in my brain. And a couple of times, I thought of finding some, you know, way to introduce this. Um uh, 
the story behind Colossus, and if you can find it, um, I don't know if it's available to stream. I have it on DVD. Uh, when it first came out, I went blanks right now. Uh, the United, the President of the United States, this is right at the top of the movie, goes on Nationwide TV and says, as, as of midnight tonight, the defense of the United States will be in the hands of a computer called Colossus. It has been built by Dr. Charles Forbin, hence the Forbin Project. And here he is to explain how it works. And Forbin, who was played by Eric Braden, uh, actually was a soap actor for a long time, but it was excellent, um, explains that they have built this computer. And of course, this was 1971, 72, maybe. Uh, they had built this computer, and it was, of course, it was all wearing tapes and so forth. It was high tech at the time, but now we go, Jesus Christ. And he said, it is impenetrable. No one can get in, no one can get out. That's the whole point. You, you cannot get, we cannot get in to stop it. So that way, you know, the, the country now, as the president says, can go on. Uh, you know, to concentrate, you know, on, our economy will change. We no longer have to spend billions of dollars at defense, you know, and we can make this a better country to live in, blah, 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 right? So the computer is switched on at midnight, and the first thing it says is there is another system. And the Russian ambassador calls and says, we have been working on another system that's ex almost exactly the same. And the two demand to be hooked up. And when the presidents of the two countries refuse, they say a bomb is, uh, a nuclear missile has been launched at Paris. Connect us immediately. And I can't, obviously, you can guess where it goes from there. It is a wonderful movie. Uh, you know, in fact, I, um, I asked uh, Chat uh, GTP, is it GTP or GPT? I can't remember. GPT. Uh, I asked it. Um, what do you think of the possibility of Colossus, the Forbin project, actually uh, being a problem for mankind? He said, I, I think that's very unlikely. Which, of course, is exactly what he would say, if you think about it. So uh, it, it, it's a great little movie. You can track it down. Um, uh, and, and, of course, uh, we're all hoping that the inventor of... Um, uh, a lot of these uh, inventors of a lot of these EIs are now saying this could be a problem. You know? But, uh, uh, and so that was always in the back of my head. So I think that's where I came up with the idea of the, the computer control building. And w of course, when we're talking about movies, you mentioned this as well. A lot of people would hear this plot for the captive tower and they would say, Oh, it's, it's like Die Hard. And of course, you're you were way before I think Die Hard came out in 1988. Now, it was, I believe, based on a book that came out, but even that book didn't come out until the late 70s. So I think your episode still predates the Die Hard plot. So when Die Hard came out, what was your reaction? You and Bruce sitting there in the theater or wherever you saw it, were you thinking, hey, they this this was this is the captive tower? Well, our agent actually, um, who also was an attorney, uh, he toyed with the idea of suing, you know, for plagiarism. But, you know, the, he said, 
we could win. It's not likely. You're going to go up against Universal, who have an army of lawyers on staff full time, um, and the amount of bad will you will generate for yourselves and me, you know, our agent. Uh, he said, you know, it just you know, it's you're not going to get a trillion dollars, you know, so it's not worth it. But you know, we did consider it in an actual fact. The best, I guess, that fans of the show can do is if somebody is talking about how great Die Hard is, make sure to chime in and say, hey, you know, if you like Die Hard, you should consider watching this episode of the Spider-Man series because it's it's uh, kind of the originator. Well, Philip, this has been a real treat. I, I think we've done a fine job of talking about some of the specifics and the scene. And I want to just say sincerely, thank you because the captive tower has been cited. I've talked to people over the years and it is cited as a, a lot of people's favorite episode from the Spider-Man series. And maybe that is because it is a little contemporary and, and there's, it's just, it, a lot of people uh, really hold this episode kind of near and dear. So to yourself and Bruce, a, a sincerest, uh, extension of gratitude not only from me but on behalf of all the fans of the series well thank you so much this has been a pleasure thank you for listening to today's episode and thank you to philip for coming on the show more broadly i want to take a minute just to thank everybody for the enthusiastic response to the podcast so far whether people have left comments or sent me personal messages in some cases, or left a good star rating on iTunes. Trust me, it has all been noticed, and it is all sincerely appreciated. You're all part of this, this great community of fans, and I like to think that it's not just me, but it is all of us sitting in this chair having these podcast conversations. I'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime... Toggle over to the main website, which is Spider-Man77.com, to browse all sorts of photos and memorabilia from the show. That website is kind of like Grand Central for us fans. Also, be part of all the good stuff about the show that is posted on Instagram, at Series, And make sure you subscribe to the Spider-Man 77 TV YouTube page. Again, I'm John Bergman. Thank you for listening. See you next time.